Hello, listeners, and welcome to Closing Time, the podcast that provides an inside look at the world of healthcare startups and venture capital. I'm Hallie Tecco. And I'm Michael Esquivel. Each episode, we get the privilege of meeting entrepreneurs at the forefront of healthcare innovation. You get to eavesdrop on pitches that are reshaping healthcare from founders daring to think differently. So pull up a chair and join us as we journey into the future of healthcare, one pitch at a time. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Closing Time, where your co-hosts, Michael Esquivel and Hallie Tecco. Today's founder is Jenna Shu, the founder and CEO of DocBotic, the world's most accessible mental health care. Jenna, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This is a, um, a very ambitious tagline. Can we start <laughs> by you telling us your elevator pitch? Yes. Um, So DuckBotic is a very proudly clinician and survivor-led company, Um, and we are making therapy accessible to everyone on Earth with a mobile phone. And we do this by codifying existing evidence-based mental health treatments into automated but intelligent text messaging programs. Great. And can you give us an idea of what that looks like for the patient? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so our first program is actually a sleep improvement program um, that's uh, been probably clinically proven to reduce the symptoms of insomnia. And what that looks like for the patient is that we're codifying the first line treatment for insomnia. It's called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, or CBTI. And it's actually quite simple. The three components that we um, that comprise SLEPA are assessment, of course. So there is a daily assessment that adapts what's called a sleep diary. Um, and that's from the CBTA protocol. And that evaluates just very common markers of sleep quality. So when you went to bed, when you actually fell asleep, when you woke up, um, any troubles that you encountered while trying to fall asleep or in the middle of the night, And we take those inputs and we respond to them. And part of the response is sleep restriction. So essentially closing that gap between going to bed and falling asleep. That's a very common problem for people with insomnia. And so what we're trying to do is close that gap by gradually um, bringing your bedtime closer to your sleep time. And unfortunately, this sometimes means that you're sleeping at 3 a.m., 4 a.m., but that's just kind of part of the process, and we know it works because it's an evidence-based practice. Um, But we're also keeping you consistent to the shifting um, sleep schedule. So there is that component. We also have a biweekly, what's called the Insomnia Severity Index, and that just, it's a clinical instrument that evaluates the severity of your insomnia. Um, So... That's the first component. The second is um, sleep restriction, which I had mentioned, um, getting that sleep schedule, you know, more sensical for the parameters of your life um, and also consistent. And then the third component is what are called just-in-time adaptive interventions, which is a fancy term for just behavioral nudges that happen when you need to be doing that behavior or changing that behavior. So for example, Um, One of the most 
popular suggestions that we have amongst our users is this caffeine reminder. So uh, studies have shown that caffeine can stay in your, in your system for up to nine hours. And so since we know your bedtime, um, we text you 10 hours before your suggested bedtime and we say, hey, you know, caffeine stays in your system for up to nine hours. So if you're still drinking coffee or tea, make sure to wrap it up within the next hour um, if you want to get better sleep tonight. Um, and so that's kind of what it looks like. And it is kind of a very shifting uh, program that's tailored to, you know, a user shifting needs. Um, but we have seen in a clinical trial that, you know, people see improvement in as little as two weeks. So it's a very effective um, program. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Michael, I know that sleep is very important to you, so I'm going to let you chime in. <laughs> I've heard I go. Sleep, the three kids. Yeah, yeah. With, with, with three kids at home, uh, you know, sleep is fundamental. We we know this, Jenna. So so one of the things we always hear about is, you know, you shouldn't be checking your phone at night, right? The blue light mm-hmm. and and the impact of that. So how does it work? I'm thinking about my poor wife who who is constantly struggling with insomnia. She's waking up at three in the oh. morning, and the first thing she does, yes. contrary to what our doctors have told us is she'll grab her phone, right? So, so how do you, you know, how do you uh, reconcile the, Hey, let's not use the phone, but yet this is a text-based, which by the way, I love, and I want to talk right. about that in a moment, but how, how do you reconcile that with, to. yeah. How, how do you reconcile that with, you know, you shouldn't be checking your phone in the middle of the night. Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of sounds counterintuitive, but I think, and it's been shown that a lot of sleep health um, and what constitutes at sleep health actually is heavily dependent on your behaviors during the day. Um, it just all your behaviors, your habits, um, what you do during the day influences your sleep at night. Um, and so actually we don't definitely don't encourage you to interact with the program at night. We encourage people actually to, set a bedtime routine um, an hour before their bedtime. And we actually do send them a text reminding them, you know, time to put down your phones, um, do your bedtime routine, and then make sure to get to bed at your suggested bedtime. Um, and so I think part of the uh, maybe feature end um, bug is that we don't allow interactivity at this um, point in time just because we know from personal experience, of course, like that a tendency to go to your phone for comfort yes. or, you know, if you need to distract yourself. Um, and so we don't, we try to limit uh, the opportunities in which you can interact with our program right now. That, that, make, that makes sense. Hallie, do you see, I mean, I don't know, Hallie, if you use an aura ring or one of these devices, but, but, but curious, uh, Jenna, is it integrated with those types of technologies or is it just all, t- you know, through, yes. through the text-based engagement? So, how, like, how do you measure the sleep quality and the sleep length, et cetera, other than asking the user how she did? Yeah, it's such an interesting question because obviously there's such a big market for Aura Rings. People who use Aura Ring love it, um, right? And they use the data um, to motivate them to take um, steps towards healthier habits. And that's great. Um, but on the flip side of that, there's also this phenomenon called orthosomnia, which I think is kind of a newish term, um, which describes insomnia that is actually invoked by um, anxiety around your sleep data. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> 
you're, yeah. you're looking at someone. Such you're looking at someone who has that anxiety. Oh my god! Oh my god! So people are people's sleep is getting worse because they're they're thinking about it. So yes. it's like it's on their mind as they're going to bed, and then that's like preventing them from going to bed. Wow. Yes, exactly. And like not to wow. be reductionist or anything, but a lot of the protocol around. And, and of course, I'm not a clinician, so please don't cite me here. But um, from what I've learned from my clinical or clinical partners is that a lot of the um, what prevents someone from falling asleep or maybe waking up in the middle of the night and failing to fall back asleep is anxiety. It's just feeling anxious about, um, oh, I'm going to go to bed and not be able to fall asleep. It's just the worst feeling in the world. Yes. Um, yes. And having to do that every single day for weeks on end just exacerbates and it's a vicious, vicious cycle. <laughs> well, so I'm wondering, yeah. So, so are, are I, maybe you're about to say this, so I apologize for interrupting, no but do you see this as then an alternative, uh, a, a lighter alternative to the very expensive, the aura ring, which by the way, is like $500 plus a monthly mm-hmm. fee. Um, is yeah. this an alternative to this that is um, a little lower key? Yes. I mean, our core value and the whole reason why we started this company in the first place is just to try to develop what is the simplest, most accessible intervention that we can design that will be able to impact as many people as possible. Because like you said, not everyone can afford an aura ring. I cannot afford an aura ring. Um, and, you know, along that line of thought, not everyone can afford a therapist. Not everyone can afford, you know, all the plethora of opportunities out there for mental health um, services. So, so Jenna, when, when, so when I wake up in the middle of the night because it's 3 a.m. and I'm ruminating about, oh, I forgot to send that email and, oh, darn, I forgot to give Hallie a call back on that. And, and mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> does the user, the patient user then engage with uh, Docbotics platform then at that point, or, or is it like, no, 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 we, you know, at that point, we're kind of, we've worked up the routine. And so now we don't want you engaging at three in the morning. Yes. We maximize engagement during the day. And then when it's nighttime, you know, we kind of leave you to kind of the magic of the, of the protocol. So hope, hopefully you should be, um, laying in bed awake for a short amounts of time. Um, every day. So this is the lower cost, more accessible version. Tell us about your pricing, how you're pricing this product today. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm sure this has changed over time and you've probably experimented as you've gotten feedback. So just tell us about your pricing journey and where you are today and what's led you to kind of finding the right pricing today. Yeah, it's a good question and something that we're so experimenting with. Um, We started out with a $30 um, price point for a four week service. So we didn't have a subscription at that point. Um, it was just a $30 flat fee. Um, and we knew that people would see improvement within two to three weeks. Right. And so we started out with that. Um, and then we were seeing from our users that people wanted to continue on with the, with the intervention. And we also saw in our clinical trial that actually 70% of our participants just kept using it past, it was then an eight-week uh, program, and they just kept using it um, for as long as we allowed them to. Um, and so we took that as pretty good indication that there is a demand for a subscription model. And of course, um, I think 
all businesses and investors like to see a subscription model. So we implemented that and um, it's now a $20 a month intervention. And I actually even think that is probably too expensive, um, especially given that, you know, sadly, the, you know, the prevalence data is very, it mirrors, you know, poverty um, prevalence as well. And we've heard from a lot of our users that, um, you know, they can't really afford any of their options. Um, a lot of them are not insured. They're unemployed. Um, you know, sleep is a luxury. Yes, it really is. It, it really truly is. is. Yeah, it truly is a luxury. Well put. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. And so $20 a month now. Um, so how do you think about just like the the incentives for you then, because you make more money the longer someone needs your product, but from a user satisfaction standpoint, they would, you know, hopefully figure out some tweaks in their life to improve their sleep and have mm -hmm. lifelong changes after whatever it would be three to six months. Right. Um, but you are, you know, incentivized to keep them on, you know, for as long as possible. How are you thinking right. about that? Well, from a survivor perspective, um, this is like a no brainer. I'm just like, obviously we want everyone to get better. You know, we're a team of clinicians and people who have been there as well. Um, and so for better or worse, we don't really, um, think about those conflicting, um, incentives, but I will say that we are not stopping at sleep. Um, we have a depression program on the way. We actually co-designed it with Thomas Jefferson University. Um, and, you know, anxiety is next. And actually these three indications are highly, highly comorbid. Like I've suffered from all three of them, like my entire adult life and probably before then. And so, um, I know from personal experience and also secondhand, um, hearing from users, people I know, clinicians who have treated patients, like th these are not like a one and done, you solve insomnia and then you sleep better for the rest of your life. These are highly recurring um, conditions and they're highly comorbid. So you're very unlikely you to have think of it as one. like a masterclass for various mental health issues. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I love that. And we do plan on doing a little more, um, maybe lower threshold, like subclinical um, programs as well, like burnout. Um, the, Treatment for burnout is very similar to depression. Um, some even think that burnout is like a smaller version of depression. Um, and so um, we do plan on doing what we're thinking about as many programs as well. Um, you said, you know, now you're a small team and you're not really, you guys are just want the best for your patients. I will say as soon as you take major venture yes. dollars and have VCs behind you. They're going to be pushing, pushing, pushing for LTV. Yes. And so it will be a totally different pressure. And so that like genuine care that is opposed to profitability now does not scale yes. as, um, with the company. So I would just think, you know, as you build your strategy around this, I would think about building in, um, you know, just align I always say like align the margin and the mission um, mm. so that, you know, the better your customers do, the happier they are, the better they're served, the, the more money you make. I love that. Sorry, I'm just taking a note here <laughs> because. Yes. But yeah, that's a really great point. And, you know, currently I think we have a pretty good potential to make a healthy margin. Currently it's about 80%. Um, but of course, we're still terrific. very young. It's terrific. So. 
So, Jenna, so let's let's talk about the other side, which is the clinician. So is she engaging with the patient user? The text exchanges are going back and forth. I assume some of it is AI driven. Some of it is automated. But how is the clinician engaging with the patient user then on, 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 on the other side? Yes. Well, this is what we're most excited about. So I think uh, the thinking is, and then, you know, healthcare is very conservative for good reason. Um, and I think a lot of people are afraid to remove the clinician from the equation, right? Um, because it's hard to um, be confident in the quality of care you're giving without a person in the mix. Um, and this is why it was so important for us to do a clinical trial right off the bat. Um, it was a feasibility trial, so it was not evaluating the efficacy of CBTI um, because we know that that is evidence-based protocol. We don't need to test that anymore. But what we were testing was the effectiveness of this SMS automated SMS pro platform that we had developed. So will it dilute the efficacy of this evidence-based protocol? Um, will people accept it as you know a medium for care delivery? And we saw really incredible results and it was a resounding yes. And so we were um, pretty excited about that because I think a lot of the troubles that we've seen in teletherapy specifically is that it's very hard to scale, you know, a service model, right? And you, what you end up with is burnt out clinicians and, you know, patients with um, pretty poor outcomes because of that. And so um, it was really important to us when we started to, Try to innovate on the form of therapy itself and ideate on how we can remove the human from the mix and still see really good clinical outcomes. So the clinician then, so they're not reviewing every, obviously, text exchange that goes back and forth between the user and the platform. But do, mm -hmm. do you find, uh, you know, are there moments where you're sort of saying there are triggers here that clearly we need a human intervention on this. And how, how does, how does that work? Just, just curious to see when, when you get that human intervention into the platform. Yeah, it's a really good question. So for our insanity program, we don't, there's no human involvement at all whatsoever. Um, it's completely automated. And of course we have clinicians working with us on the product. And in fact, they take a lead on product design which is something that I feel very strongly about after having seen, um, you know, poor collaboration between product and clinicians um, in past setups. Um, and so we make sure that they take the lead in product design and development. I'm very proud of that. Um, but it's a really good question for, say, our upcoming depression programs um, to have that, have that human in the mix and have, um, maybe a little smarter um, risk modeling, right? And so that's something that will come with um, more data and time and experimentation, but um, definitely something that we've thought about in the past and we'll think about once we officially launch our depression program. Switching gears just a little bit, can you tell us kind of how far along you guys are, how you're acquiring customers, how many customers you've acquired, um, mm -hmm. and kind of how growth is going? What we've done is that we've, so the first thing we did, because we're nerds, we did our clinical trial first and foremost. Um, we actually submitted a paper uh, this year. Awesome. And since then, we have had um, over 3,000 users in more than 130 countries on six continents. Um, and we're very excited about that. Um, that was largely um, 
those are largely free users. We did a public effectiveness trial this summer um, that was free to everyone. Um, and so the vast majority of those users are free. And while we were doing that, we were also developing um, a behavior activation program that was co-designed with our research partners at Thomas Jefferson University, who are so amazing um, and totally get you know, the value of SMS for a disability population. Um, and so we wrapped up development actually this month, which is really wild, um, but hopefully more on the way. They have this big research group and they're all very excited about chatbots as a way to boost engagement and adherence to uh, rehabilitation programs. So um, more to come for that and in the meantime, we are already working on our um, a mini program for burnout um, because we've all experienced that this this year, um, which will um, be the prelude to our larger um, big sister program for depression. So, how big, Jenna, is the team today then that's uh, helping you on the mission? Oh, so tiny, but it's very mighty at the same time. I love um, it. I love we- it. <laughs> Super lean and scrappy, yes. Um, so currently it's me and my CTO who met way back in grad school. Um, he kind of saw the the very initial nascent prototype of um, what would eventually become dogmatic. But um, we're both full-time. We worked full-time on um, this project with Thomas Jefferson. And we also have um, our clinical product director, Dr. Victoria Bengieva. And she is... So amazing. She's, you know, on the board of the APA and we worked really closely together at MindStrong actually um, working on clinical product together. Um, and we also have a director of outreach, Svenja Grieb, and um, that kind of rounds out like our, we have two full-time pe- people and two part-time people and then a lot of very supportive advisors as well. That's, that's how they start scrappy in the beginning and every, every great, every great disruptive startup has, has begun their journey this way. So let me, let me ask the, uh, the, the fun question I like to ask from time to time. So if you could wave a magic wand, what would you change right now? Oh God, in the world? Yeah. With the business, of course. Yeah. With the world, we, we could spend hours. What, what could you change right now with your business? What would you change? What could you change? Oh, gosh. I mean, so what we're really what we really have our hearts set on and this goes against conventional wisdom, like every investor, digital health founder has, you know, tried to dissuade me from going D to C with our business. And for good reason, there's a lot of scar tissue out there. I totally (laughs) understand. Um, But I the survivor of me feels like it's not when I was struggling with mental health issues um, for like my entire adult life, I never interfaced with, you know, employer benefits or like even, you know, insurance. Right. It was my priority was trying to live a life that was worth living and that took up all of my time. <laughs> um, and so I don't think a lot of these solutions, I feel like, require prerequisites that um, don't map to my experience as someone who might really benefit from those services, right? And so that's why it's really important for us to go to DC, um, 
especially with our primary motivation of being, you know, the world's most accessible mental health care. Um, you're not going to get that if, you know, you're only going to employers or you're only going um, for payers. So, yeah, I think that's true. I love I love that approach um, that you have. I think the accessibility piece is is very much needed and it is clear that that is at the core of your mission. So bravo on that. <laughs> Um, you know, I also am sensing that you're very product oriented. I, um, have not downloaded the app. Is there an app or is it just the text? Yeah, you can enroll. Yeah. In the program and it'll be through text. Yeah. Yes. I'm going to, because I have been not sleeping well as of late, like the last like year or two as I've oh, wow. headed towards my forties. I feel like my sleep has, um, deteriorated. <laughs> I fall asleep. I don't stay asleep. So I yes. need... I need to try something. I'm not like quite ready for the aura ring. Um, uh, kind of the same thing as you said earlier, like it kind of over uh, quantifying myself would like right. could put me down a path of like being coming neurotic about it. Um, but it does, it feels like you, um, you know, have a really great product focus, which is great. I would say, you know, I'd love to see uh, your next hire be someone in marketing. I think mm -hmm. really figuring out your customer acquisition and really scaling it and continuing to tweak and improve the product based on what you're hearing from users and mm -hmm. just learning how to pitch it. I mean, you're, you're very clear, um, you know, to us as, you know, a founder pitching your business, but I don't know how, you know, you're pitching it to users. And I think a marketing person could really come in and help shape and productize this for your end users. So you can like, really find product market fit. And then I love the idea of this like ecosystem of various mental health apps. So how are you kind of tying them all together and building that masterclass where like, mm. you know, the Duckbotic brand and you can like, you know, go in and out of different programs as your needs change and you evolve. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, sorry, I neglected to mention that we actually do have a really amazing marketing person not full time. Oh. <laughs> I cannot. I cannot afford her. She's too brilliant for us. Her uh. name is Margaret Jung, um, but she. I love her because she really. She's literally said to me, "I was not put on this earth to sell to employers," which I really appreciate because <laughs> she. Her expertise is in digital health as well. Yeah. So we're. Yeah. Um, Michael, what do you think about like the direct to consumer versus the like employer payer route right now? Um, and the company, I mean, you work with a lot of companies that have both business models. I'm curious kind of what you're seeing is like market. Yeah, gr great moment. question, Hallie. I mean, there, there's such strong opinion, almost religion on both sides of that debate, right? It's, it's an amazing, <laughs> and, and, and unfortunately for founders, what I find is the, it, it, they're, they're kind of thrashing depending on the, the last person to speak to them about the religious viewpoint yes. they have on that issue, you know, yes. uh, it, it feels like in the moment and, and, and Hallie, welcome your pushback as a very active investor on this, but it feels like in the moment there, there seems to be a lot of skepticism around direct to consumer, right? There seems to be a belief in a lot of the venture community conversations that I've been involved in that, uh, that people care about their health care, but only to an extent. And then they're reliant on their employers to really to, to really uh, backstop it. So people are willing to go out and spend, you know, obscene amounts of money on things that, that, that don't impact their health. But when it comes to some of these solutions, they're unwilling to spend $20 a month, right? Uh, right. at times. So I, it, it's a hard one because I've seen success. I've seen companies succeed on both sides, uh, pursuing these different paths. But Hallie, to your point about the marketing person, 
you know, it is a different set of teammates that you'd need on your team, Jenna, to help you scale that, right? Experts mm-hmm. in direct-to-consumer are not the same folks that are B2B2C kind of uh, experts. And, 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 and uh, so you'll want to be mindful. Mm-hmm. At some point, you're going to have to pick a side and, and invest deeply there. But, but it is, a, it is a, mm-hmm. a tale of two cities, and there's such a bifurcated viewpoint and a religious viewpoint on which solution channel is better. But, but Hallie, what do, you, what do you see? I mean, as an investor, you're out there seeing so many yeah. of these founders. Yeah. I mean, I, I love direct-to-consumer um, when it is a price point that is affordable, which I feel like, you know, you check check that off. Um, but as an investor, my investor hat on, I can't do direct-to-consumer. I can't do even employer or outplay without, like, a lot of confidence that they figured out the customer acquisition piece. Mm-hmm. And I think in direct-to-consumer, and look, like, I've, I've started now two direct-to-consumer <laughs> businesses. Um, so I under, I mean, it, it's hard. And um, CAC has gone up and, you know, advertising has changed quite a bit over the last five, 10 years, certainly 10 years, even like five, even three years, it's changed quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and so keeping up with that is, is really important and figuring out that flywheel that can really get a brand going. Um, mm-hmm. and something like this has really powerful word of mouth and people, like if they find a solution, they want to share it with their friends. Um, if you are in the app store, like, you know, getting more downloads and getting more reviews just continues to benefit you because then you're more visible in in the app search when people are looking for, you know, searching for a sleep app to download. Um, So, you know, I think for this, I love going direct to consumer first. And then, you know, at some point you could hire someone that could just be like the benefits person who helps you plug into the benefits companies that cover it, but aren't your business isn't dependent on it. Um, maybe it's just like, it's thought of more as a perk, like they're going to pay for this, you know, for their employees based on usage and it's covered. I know a lot of companies are doing this with Headspace. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, Headspace is a direct to consumer company, but a lot of employers cover it. And so I think, you know, I, I wouldn't do that now. I would continue to focus on like just being obsessed about your customer profile and understanding their needs yeah. and what kind of, what motivates them to try this app and stick with it. I would love to ask you guys a question if that's okay. Wait, relative to this. (laughs) Um, Well, I've so I've experienced two minds when it comes to primary fit. Um, A lot of people have told me that you got to get it down to the age, gender, location, you know, income bracket, everything. Super specific, right? There's another contingent that says, "Hey, you have an insomnia product. You're, you know." Ideal customer profile is people with insomnia, and that's all you got to do, right? Um, what is your take on that, on these two? Very, <laughs> very different yeah. um, perspectives. I mean, gosh, I, 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 if I had to pick, I would I would just pick the latter because I think obsessing yeah. over, like, how old is she? And, like, <laughs> going through the, the marketing agency project of, like, the personas. Like, right, right. Lynn is a 32-year-old New Yorker right. who, I mean, <laughs> like... That to me is like not that necessary. I think you yes. you experiment. You put out ads on social and you see which messages click. Mm-hmm. You literally now you should be talking to as many users as you can regularly. I, I hope you are. I, I feel like you're the type of founder that would be doing that. So, um, you know, getting their feedback. What do you like? What don't you like? What made you try this program over another? And mm-hmm. you'll see those sort of common threads come up and lean into that. Um, and let yeah. the customers kind of shape the business for you. And I, I mean, I think the market 
the market will determine kind of who that customer is. And I don't think being so narrow with the demographic is helpful in your case. It is like insomnia does not discriminate. (laughs) Um, It is it is every, you know, every age, every gender. I mean, certainly there's, yes. as you said, like there are socioeconomic factors. There are probably age factors that can make it worse. But right. um, I wouldn't try to go so narrow. I think just what sort of message resonates with your customers and continue doing that. Yeah, it's a little tricky because a lot of the, like I kind of mentioned, the prevalence data maps to, you know, poverty lines um, and, you know, are by far our most popular audience, we were trying to um, optimize for demographic diversity for our free public trial that we had in the summer. Um, But like, we were so incredibly popular in India and Pakistan that we had to like shut them off completely because it was just like overwhelming. Um, (laughs) We were trying to have a very diverse um, sample size. But um, what I would tell this to investors that we would get dinged because, you know, it's a, it's a developing country. They're never going to pay, um, which is really discouraging um, to hear. But of course, I understood. Um, I think I mean, I, I would say just language barrier as well um, mm-hmm. and localization. I don't know what sort of like cultural nuances there would be in, you know, in everything from like the time you eat to like yeah. any rituals before bed. So I would say in terms of like, just focus, I would, you know, Western English speaking, um, you know, users would be, that's where you're starting now. Right. So trying to like accommodate, um, a, you know, a group elsewhere at this point would be, I think would be challenging. Right. But I think if you're, um, you know, already, you're, you already are starting these trials and starting to publish, you have kind of a lot of momentum here. Um, I would just continue going with that. Hallie, that's such great advice. I think one of the big mistakes we see startup founders, first-time founders make is they try to tackle everything at once. And and I think it's really important to stay focused and, and, you know, really, really narrow on, on, on validating, you know, the market opportunity here. I, I had one, one final question. You know, I think about watching my teenagers and how they engage with their, their phones and, and social media. They don't use text messaging SMS as much. So, so the question that, that I'm wondering, and, and, and they just may be, you know, oddballs in that regard. Uh, they'd rather communicate through Snapchat or, or, or through TikTok or, or through any of these other platforms. I even yeah. see them occasionally using WhatsApp, which was surprising to me. But, but when you think about, um, you know, how to make this even more ubiquitous, I mean, certainly the generation that, that, that Hallie and I are in and, and, and that we, we consistently use SMS, I find it to be the most convenient tool. But but as you think about growing Docbotic, you know, is is that the right medium to to really really make this platform as ubiquitous as I think it can and should be, given the insomnia crisis that we're dealing with? I mean, I totally agree. I, we're definitely not married to SMS, especially with changing regulations. Um, there's been quite the crackdown um, that's made working with SMS um, considerably harder. It used to be so easy, um, but we actually are um, available over WhatsApp as well. So that's how our international users use it. Yeah. Um, we've also kicked around the idea of you know, integrating with uh, Facebook Messenger and Instagram uh, Messenger and you know, just doing a partnership with, or not a partnership, but an integration with social media um, for the younger generations. But um, again, definitely not married to SMS. It was just 
It just seemed like the most ubiquitous and accessible media. Totally, totally. And it's the right place to start, right? As Hallie said, I think it was yeah. such great advice. Like, let's let's master it in, in, in our, in our you know, portion of the world and in the user base, because it's massive mm -hmm. just here. And then you can localize right. it and take it broader and make it make it the worldwide ubiquitous platform that it we know it could be. Yeah. Yep. Although I'm I'm finding like, you know, email unsubscribe. I'm finding so many people are doing mobile now. I'm doing yes. stop, stop, stop. Report junk. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I think, you know, really having to do it right because it's not as uh, people are starting to get it's similar to the inbox problem <laughs> where yes, they're absolutely. getting so many text messages. They're not you're not able to stay at, at top of things anymore. But yeah, so much um, spam. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, anyhow, um, Jenna, thank you so much for your time today and sharing more about Botic. Where, if people are interested in learning how to sleep better, how do they sign up? Um, you can just go to sleep.dacbotic.care. Um, the onboarding is on online, um, but the entire experience is over SMS or WhatsApp, um, your decision. But it's just Amazing. online. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much for having me. This is the most pleasant conversation that I've ever had with investors. Thank you for your optimism. Oh. <laughs> we aim to be uh, helpful and, and positive. Yes. Um, I will definitely be it. taking notes on my own podcast appearance um, after this. Aww. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Jenna. All right. And that's closing time for today. A huge thanks to our partners at Fenwick for underwriting this show. Recording, editing, and audio mixing by Kyle Moore. Thanks to our guests and to you, our listeners, for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And check out our website, closingtimepodcast.com for more exclusive content. Until next time, this is Hallie Teco and Michael Esquivel for Closing Time. 